Hey there. Welcome back to the I'm Still Here podcast with Tammy Lawrence, Symbolisti. Many of us have lost loved ones, and it brings a significant change in our lives. Our loved ones, however, would want us to continue to live on, being that we are still here. It's important for us to take care of our mental health as we move forward. So our intention is to continue to discuss grief, but widening our focus so that we might discuss other ways to help us live our lives. My hope is you continue this journey along with us as we shift to explore our new world with our loved ones hidden by our sides. Hi there. Today we are speaking with David Weil. He is a doctor and the former director of the Center of Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Transplant Program at Stanford. He is the author of the memoir, Exhale. It shares stories not only about the miracle of transplantation, but also how it is a very human endeavor performed by people with strengths, weaknesses, powerful attributes, and profound flaws. It is about the emotional roller coaster of saving and losing lives. He realized at some point it was time for him to step back and access his own life. David's coming to us today from New Orleans. Hello, David. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking some time for us. So, wow, what an incredible job that must be. Yeah, it, uh, it got my attention every day. <laughs> um, I never had trouble getting out of bed and going to work, that's for sure. Who decides who gets the lung transplant? Yeah, there's a group of us that actually meet every week. It's called the Selection Committee, which is sort of ominous sounding, but it uh, is a group of physicians, nurses, dietitians, social workers, just the whole multidisciplinary team. And we look at a lot of medical data to decide, but there's also subjective characteristics of patients that come into play as well. How resilient do we think they are? What kind of support system do they have in place? Do they have the wherewithal to, to go through this very difficult uh, therapy. How long does it take to do the surgery? It's um, usually around six to eight hours, depending on the degree of difficulty. So it's a, it's a longer surgery. Yeah, I mean, medical advancement has come so far. It's just, it's profound to even think that I can change out someone's lungs and give them a healthy set of lungs. Yeah, I got involved in this field in the early 90s when it was just starting in the U.S. Uh, Canada, where you are, was a little bit ahead of us at, at, in Toronto, actually, where much of the procedure was uh, uh, was really discovered. I um, been, uh, got involved early on, and I, I, I was amazed then that we could do it. I'm amazed now that we can do it. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So I had a look at your book, Exhale, and there's so many stories in there that you share along with your own personal uh, thoughts and ideas of going through the job that you had. Yeah, it, um, it, it, it was interesting because even in real time while I was doing the job, I, I realized that it was affecting me, it was affecting the people around me, it was my friends, my family, my team that I worked with. It wasn't just the kind of job that you go to and then you go home and turn it off for the day. It, it didn't work that way. We were um, pretty much had to be available 24-7, 365 to do the transplants. And based on what I experienced in the hospital, it was very difficult to just go home, turn it off, and, and immediately get into family life. So that, that made it somewhat difficult to do. 
How did you ever find a work-life balance then? I don't think I did. Uh, I really did. And I, I, I um, thought I needed to do that. And by the time I walked away, it was a more urgent need than um, it was at the beginning of my career, of course. But it was very difficult for me to really strike that balance. As the leader of the group, I had particular difficulty, you know, when I was at Stanford, separating my professional and personal life. So I would think that the primary reason that I decided to step away from the front lines of medicine was really, I didn't think I was really going to be able to, to balance that. My daughters were getting older at that time. I missed a lot of the things that they do when they're kids. Um, my wife had the primary responsibility for raising the children. So I thought it was a good time for me to step away and uh, create a new chapter in life. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing now then? So I have a consulting business, um, imaginatively called Wild Consulting Group, where we help transplant programs and ICU care and pulmonary care and any type of program that's struggling. We kind of go in and figure out what's going on and make recommendations to, to help fix the program, to help improve it. And I also work with companies that are in the transplant arena and give them advice about how they can help patients more. And then finally, as you mentioned, I, I like to write. I wrote one book. I'm just finishing a second one now and periodically write op-eds and essays and things like that when the um, mood strikes me. Very good. So where did your idea come from, Exhale? Or you just realized that this was my life and I need to share these stories? Yeah, my, my feeling all along was that I was kind of living inside of a movie. I saw things in the hospital every day that I, you know, sometimes even turned to the people I was working with and said, I, I, I can't believe this. I wish everybody could see this. And so I started taking notes about halfway through my career in a journal, and ultimately those notes became my book. I didn't want to really teach people or tell people how we do transplants and that's it. I wanted to really give them the experience of what it feels like to do that kind of job. How did you learn to let go of control when, I mean, there's so many things with, outside of your control in this type of a job. How did you let go? Yeah, that was probably the hardest thing for me to learn, Tammy, as I, as I went on in my career. I thought, uh, incorrectly, as it, as it turns out, that if I did my job the best way that I could, I got my team to do the best that they could, that we could really save every pa patient we met. But that's obviously not the case. Um, we, we took care of a very sick group of patients. And probably the most difficult part for me was to accept that there were going to be times where patients didn't do well, even if we did our job perfectly well. I'm, I must say, in, in, in all candor, I never really mastered that. I, I got better at it, but I still, even toward the end of my run in the hospital, had difficulty accepting when patients didn't do well, or they died on the waiting list, which I write about in my book, and it didn't even get a chance at getting a transplant. That was particularly difficult for me. That would be very challenging. I liken this to a cancer journey. Two people, exact same cancer, exact same treatment. One lives, one dies. And you wonder why. It just, it doesn't make sense. 
Yeah, it really doesn't. I mean, a lot of what I saw in the hospital was kind of mystical in a lot of ways. Um, it, it made me think, at least all along, that there was some larger force out there because there were patients that shouldn't have made it that did. There were patients that should have made it that didn't. And what I saw was a lot of resiliency. But I, even in the face of resiliency, some patients lost that battle for reasons that really weren't clear to me at the time. But I was also moved at the courage that patients show. It, it, it really is a motivating factor for people like me and people that do this kind of work because they really dig in. Uh, you know, patients, generally speaking, and this may be obvious, but really want to live. And they fight and they fight and they fight. And it makes, me want to fight for them. And I think that that's something that really motivated me throughout my career. Wasn't it funny? It's that whole, what you're saying is reminding me of we're all students and we're all teachers. And it just depends on, you know, you're shown on a constant everyday basis what you need to work on, but we usually don't want to pay attention to that until it comes to life and death situations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think it's very clarifying, you know, to, to, to face death. I've seen it and you, you may have as well in your own family where, you know, a family member or one of my patients faces death and everything gets very clear at that point. It, it gets clear about the fact that they want to live, but it also gets clear about what matters and what doesn't. And I've been encouraged by seeing transplant patients get a second chance at life and the things that used to matter to them before just don't anymore. Um, they, they start really focusing on the things that matter. And in my experience, that was kind of what I call the three Fs, uh, family, friends, and faith. And that's a, a big part of what I saw in the hospital is those patients really focusing on those big things. Now, how long did it take you before you understood that that was what was important, even though, I mean, you're giving all of your time and much of your energy to people that you're doing transplants on. But when did that translate back to you where you understood, I need to learn this lesson myself? You know, it was somewhere midway through my career. You know, I think, um, you know, having done this for about 25 years, I was a slow learner. And I think at the beginning, I was just head down, say, for the first half of my career. And then I opened my eyes a little bit, and I think part of helping me open my eyes was having my own children and then taking care of other people's children, and that was clarifying. And I also think the other big event that happened early in my career was that my father needed a liver transplant, got a liver transplant, and... I then became not only just a transplant doctor, I was now a family member of a transplant recipient, and I got to see it from the other side. And I write about that quite a bit in my book because I think it made me more empathetic to what the patient's families were going through. But in a way, it also made me dig in harder uh, to try to do the best I could for them. I think, and that's vital, I think, for listeners to understand if they have someone that's on a transplant waiting list or someone who's receiving a transplant to see the other side of things because it's such a complex situation on both sides. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, transplant's a complex therapy. And my father, who was a physician, 
not a transplant doctor, but a physician, didn't know a lot about transplants. So if he didn't know a lot about it, then I suspected my patients didn't know a lot about it as well. And I made sure that during the course of my career, I was explaining things in terms that folks could understand uh, better than I had in the past, you know, because I realized there was a big knowledge deficit. It's a complicated therapy. There's a lot of steps to it and a lot of nuances. And I actually still do this to this day. I actually help people that are going through the process just to understand it better. Mm. And I think that's what vitally people need to know is when it comes to obviously transplant is, is a much larger thing. The majority of us aren't going to have to deal with, thankfully, but for those that are or not to go in and ask specific questions and get your answers so that you kind of become an advocate for your own uh, healing. That, that That's right, Tammy. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, a well-informed patient is obviously a stronger patient. And I think there's a lot of different sources for the information. Some of the sources are not not good sources, and some of the sources are. But what um, I think is important is that, you know, patients write out what they have to ask because they get in the room with the doctor, and the doctor is usually quite busy and harried and, you know, running in and out of the room. And, you know, a lot of us don't pay as long, you know, as much attention as we should. So I think it's important to write the questions out, you know, and get your thoughts together before you go in the room and ask, you know, what you need to ask. Exactly. And not go down the internet rabbit hole. And I mean, that is one of the worst things I think people can do is what does this mean? And yeah, it can be terrifying. Yeah. I, and I saw a, a good bit of the, uh, the rabbit hole of the internet, you know, patients would come in with a two inch thick internet printout and, you know, a lot of the information, especially about my field was just flat out inaccurate. And so one thing that I like to do now in the patients that I'm helping navigate the process is get the good information and give them the, the accurate information about how it really works. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, and I think that that's so very much important. What are some tips that you have for anyone who is struggling with work and life balance? You know, I, I, I've talked to you a lot about this since my book has come out. And I think that you have to fight isolation. So I think connection is the key. And I found in the times in my life when I was doing less well, I became more and more isolated. I'd come home from work, you know, start reading a book or watching a game on TV and isolating myself from my family and friends and work colleagues for that matter. I think people do better when no matter what's going on, they stay connected to one another. And it seems like when we talk about burnout, which is a term I'm not really a fan of, we see, though, that those folks have become more and more isolated as time goes on. And if you find yourself becoming isolated, you have to fight that. And you have to get back to connecting to the people that matter to you. And whether or not that takes the help of a therapist or you do it yourself, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, it pretty much doesn't matter. But I think that when I've seen people struggle at work, it's through isolation. Mm -hmm. I have so many things to say about this. <laughs> first, first of all, we just went through COVID. So talk about isol times of isolation. My goodness, so many people were very much alone through this that journey. And that was terrible. The other thing that comes up 
is just a news report that I heard yesterday. And it's funny, I'm talking to this with a lung transplant doctor, is that loneliness, they're saying, is the new smoking. That it's because it causes just as much havoc and damage on a body being lonely as smoking would. I think it's particularly true in middle-aged men, um, which I'm uh, proudly a member of now. And this is supported by both the research and just my own observation. I think women do a, a better job of staying connected to one another. And I think I, I tell my male friends that we need you know, to stay with each other because I think, and the data is pretty clear on this, um, loneliness is a not only an emotional health problem, it is a physical health problem. And there's lots of different research studies to support that. So I think you're right. You know, people talk about sitting as the new smoking. I think um, I think loneliness is the new smoking. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. So what do you tell somebody who is kind of flying solo in life that doesn't really want to reach out in some way because they feel whatever, they don't have the self-esteem for it or they're, they just feel challenged towards stepping out of their comfort zone? I think you have to take risk. And I think a lot of it is overcoming fear. And I think that, you know, to put yourself in a social situation, especially post-COVID, uh, is hard. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I don't think it matters much which way a person picks, whether it's through faith groups, exercise, social events of very various types, joining recreational sports teams. You know, I, I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. And you have to kind of use your imagination. But I think the main reason people stay isolated is inertia and fear. They just, you know, it's easier. It's, it's comfortable uh, just to stay by yourself. And I think all of us have to fight that at times. I mean, there's times when I'd also rather be by myself um, as well. But you've got to fight that. Mm. So what, is there one story from Exhale that you can share that maybe stood out more for you as more life-changing than another, or were they all evenly the same? I, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple stories in there that were important to me. One is, you know, this kind of work was an education of a lifetime. You know, so I saw families at their most vulnerable they showed weakness, but they also showed strength. One of the stories I tell in the book is about a young lady that we transplanted with cystic fibrosis who actually didn't make it through her second transplant operation. And so that, that was devastating to our team, uh, to her family. And as time went on, I showed my emotions to my family, you know, more to the family more and more. At the beginning of my career, I would you know, have kind of a robot kind of appearance to me when I was talking with them about these things. But then as time went on, through no, through no you know, sort of plan, um, I, I ended up showing my own emotion. So I'm telling this family, these parents, that they're about to lose their daughter. I'm getting emotional about it. I'm upset about it. They can see it on my face. And I walked away before I started crying. And the father pursued me down the hall and put his arm around me and asked me if I was okay and what he could do to help me in a time where he's just about to lose his 25-year-old daughter. 
And so there are these periods of grace that you see that I personally have not experienced in the rest in the rest of my life, but I saw it a great deal within the hospital when people are actually a lot better than I think some of us think they are. You know, if you turn on the news now, you, you could get the impression that people are awful and all of them are awful. That's not been my experience. In, in the hospital, I saw tremendous acts of courage, resiliency, grace, you name it. And so I think doing this kind of work gave me a lot more faith in humanity than I would have otherwise had. Mm -hmm. Such a moment of compassion that must have felt uh, overwhelming at the time, probably brought, brought uh, more emotions to the surface, I'd imagine. Yeah, it really, it really did because, um, you know, having daughters of my own, you know, and I think many of your listeners have children. Losing a child, I don't think there's anything like that. Anything compares to that. Um, and when this gentleman was actually showing concern for me, uh, that, that's, that's grace like, that I don't uh, fully understand. But such a heart-opening uh, moment. Yes. Absolutely. If you had one other thing you wanted to share with listeners, what would it be? About the struggle. You know about the struggle in life whether it's your professional struggles or personal ones there's there's ways that you can help yourself that i think some of us are availing ourselves of and some aren't you know for me it is family friends and faith you know the three f's that i talk about but then a subgroup of that for me is movement um you know i, I think it's very important that we do kind of the fundamentals in life, you know, we sleep, we get good nutrition, we exercise, we go outside, you know, hugely important. And they sound really obvious and perhaps trite. It's, it's interesting, especially in a post-COVID world, how many people I hear from that are struggling that don't leave their house, don't eat well, don't sleep well, and don't exercise. I think you've got to start there. I really do. I think the body is made to move, and I think it's made to be cared for. And what I see a lot of now is that we don't treat our bodies very well. We don't treat our minds very well. We, I think, bombard it with social media, bad news on the TV, bad news in the newspaper, divisiveness fighting. I think those are all bad things for our emotional health. And I, and I try to limit my exposure to that. That is great advice. I mean, a body in motion stays in motion. And I say this all the time, move it or lose it. It's just so true. Yeah. Yeah. And taking care of that mental health component, because physically, there's only so much we can do to take care of our health. Some things are outside of our control, as you very well know. And yeah, we just can do the best that we can in any given day. Yeah, I think I think that that's right, and I, and I do think some of it is out of our control. But boy, it sure is a good idea to control what you can control with regards to your health. What is that saying? Yeah, health is the the true wealth. No doubt, no doubt. If people wanted to purchase your book, where would they get it? It's um, available on Amazon. If they if you go to my website, davidweilmd.com, it can lead you right to several different uh, booksellers, and it should be fairly easy to find. Awesome. We'll put that link in the show notes so that people can click and find you quickly. Great. Thank you. 
Thank you for taking the time to speak with us, David. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Tammy. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for listening. We're grateful to our guests for sharing their experience and their knowledge with us. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others who might find it helpful. Be sure to follow our links on social media, which were offered in the show notes. A special shout out to Kevin McLeod and Incomputech for our background music entitled Happy Dreams. Wishing you a fabulous day.